Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's happening, guys? Here we go for another episode. This time I'm joined by Michael Hallsmore, who runs quantstart.com. This is a site which is very popular, uh, very well known amongst algo traders. Now, just for a little background, prior to trading, Michael studied computational fluid dynamics and was the co-founder of a tech startup before getting involved in a small equity fund as a quant developer, whereas key role there was cleansing data. Now, I know that may not sound overly sexy, but as you'll soon hear, we actually get into the importance of having clean, good quality data, especially when you're running an automated strategy. Now, today, independently, Michael trades his own short-term algorithmic strategies. He consults to hedge funds on machine learning and quant infrastructure, and also has a keen interest in space exploration. We discussed many interesting topics, uh, some of which include thinking about risk management from a portfolio level, trading multiple automated strategies, the role of common sense in parameter optimization, where to start if you're interested in programming and where to turn to if you get stuck, plus a whole lot more as well. Now, I will say I was really stoked to bring Michael on. Like he'll tell you, I've been bugging him for quite some time to try and make this happen. So I do hope you'll enjoy this episode. Anyway, guys, let's get right into it. Here it is, my interview with Michael Hallsmore. Why not? We may as well get started. Yeah, sounds cool, good cool. to me. So, I mean, one of the first things I, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, as someone who lives in the UK there, what's your take on the whole Brexit situation? Well, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll get political for a second. So I, I'm not particularly <laughs> uh, keen to that we've left. I, mean, I, I would have preferred to have stayed in. Um, I voted to stay in. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I did most of my sort of professional development, if you like, in London. And many of my colleagues, uh, not only at university and, uh, you know, in the workplace and through various roles I've had, have all been, you know, EU nationals for the most part. And so it's very natural for me to think of the UK as a, um, you know, a kind of, uh, a, a, you know, a sort of outward looking European country. But, you know, obviously, 
52% didn't agree, and uh, and we you know things went a bit a bit south uh, certainly in the forex market for us. Um, so uh, I, I hope I mean I don't know if you've heard just today, but we've got a new prime minister now, or will have very shortly in Theresa May, and maybe this will this will calm the market somewhat a little bit, but. Um, my personal view is the damage has sort of been done, really, and that um, you know banks are going to make good on their promises and move out to you know Dublin, Frankfurt, um, Amsterdam, lots of centres where they can you know get access to a mu- you know much larger pool of hiring talent, really. Um, so that, that's my my take on it. So, I mean, what do you anticipate will change, like, as a result of this for someone like yourself who's living in the UK? Like, what do you anticipate might change moving forward? Okay, so I think, I mean, firstly, if you're an EU national, your status is up in the air right now. There's, you know, the, nobody knows really what's going to happen in terms of when we're going to kick off this, this Article 50 process of, um, you know, leaving the union. Um, so, you know, my, my, I, I'd be worried. Um, frankly, especially if you're studying, because a lot of a lot of quants do come from an academic background, you know, principally postgraduate research or you know, sort of uh, more technical undergraduate research, and they, um, you know, they they might now be thinking, well, should I should I stay in the UK? And I've got a lot of anecdotal stories, um, you know, about students who are going back to their home countries in the EU now rather than staying in London. So it's going to reduce uh, London's sort of hiring quite significantly um, and I think the banks will just catch on to that and because it's so so easy for the banks to sort of move operations these days everything's you know computerized and automated um, I think we'll see a lot of shifting out um, you know banks to other to other parts and so it just makes it that bit harder for you know even the UK students to, to find work because now they have to really if you like compete with the continent whereas before they didn't have to necessarily compete they had access to it all so it just makes it that bit trickier and that just makes things a little bit more expensive and, and difficult. Mm, mm, okay. So uh, what was I going to say? So, you know, now that we've got the heavy stuff out of the way, <laughs> uh, straight into it. Um, before we get into the actual trading part of, of your of your background, I believe that you were involved in a couple startups before you even came to finance. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the startups you were involved with? Yeah, that, that's right, actually. So um, to sort of frame this in context a bit, um, when I was doing postgraduate study, um, I was very interested in, in uh, fluid dynamics. Okay, So um, the, the equations for fluid dynamics are very, very similar to those that are used in options pricing. So the whole black skulls model and, and all the, um, uh, you know, this, uh, this, the, which, which was really popular at the time because um, in sort of 2005, 2006, because... You know, everyone was trying to sell mortgage-backed securities, and so they needed a way to price these, these, um, you know, these financial assets. And so it's very, very, uh, it was quite straightforward at the time to go and work in, in quant finance if you had any sort of background in in sort of statistics or, or you know, engineering, fluid mechanics, that sort of thing. Um, so I, I, I also over a long period of time sort of taught myself um, web development and programming. Um, and then doing more postgraduate research, um, learn more sophisticated programming, if you like. And, and what I was thinking at the time is I was either going to go into quant finance or go into technology startups, which, you know, nowadays everyone and their dog wants to build an app. But at the time, it was a bit more of a cottage industry. Um, 
And so I, I started a, a startup straight out of um, postgraduate research with a, with a friend of mine. Um, and it was actually a social network, sort of a bit like Twitter, but it was for building, um, for uh, posting jokes. Um, so it, we did quite well for a while and we did, we did get some funding. Um, ultimately, uh, didn't work out, uh, after a couple of years. Um, we, we didn't really find the right business model. And, um, so we, we, we parted ways. Um, but straight after that, actually one of the, the investors who was, who invested in this, um, actually put me in touch with a friend of his who was just starting a sort of small, um, equities fund. And they needed um, a quant developer, if you like. So this is, uh, for those who don't know, a quant developer is somebody who um, codes up in programming languages all of these sort of statistical algorithms, um, generally derived from the sort of what would be known as the quant trader or the quant researcher. So it's the sort of other half, if you like, of, um, of quant trading. And so this this uh, this role, which I was in for for about two years, was was sort of really where I cut my teeth, if you like, um, in learning the ropes in in, in sort of uh, institutional mindset of how of how these sort of funds actually go about their trading. Um, so it was a very very good kind of uh, uh, baptism of fire, if you like, good education in in, in quant finance. Okay, so that was really your first introduction to trading. Uh, was through yeah, that was that was my that. So up until then, I'd largely been um, you know sort of theoretical, if you like, much more interested in the sort of mathematics of it. But this was our my first proper you know live trading exercise, um, you know, at the coalface. So it was um, it was definitely really eye opening. I think in terms of you know what happens when theory meets practice and then seeing what you know really happens in the in the real world you know not in the uh, in the textbook if you like and i think it formed a lot of my early sort of key takeaways lessons you know um because we we have we were you know there's a lot of volatility in that period um i think around 2011 there was some there was some pretty chunky volatility i remember uh, i think that was the the era of the um uh the japanese tsunami I think that was then, and so there was a lot of a lot of turbulence going on in the markets at the time. So it was very interesting to sort of work through that. Okay, so so tell us a little bit more about what you were actually doing, um, you know, in your role as a quant developer with the fund. Like, what were you doing on sort of a day to day basis? Like, what would that look like? Okay, so the the prime uh, task really of a quant developer is to build. Uh, what they would call the trading infrastructure. So these are all the um, kind of modules or components that that form an entire end-to-end automated trading system. So uh, a lot of that actually is um, is uh, is in, is actually to do with data, uh, obtaining data and cleaning it. Um, so there's there's a huge amount of work, probably vastly underestimated actually, um, in, in that it goes into getting hold of good financial data and then cleaning it to make it um, robust enough to be used in proper statistical analysis. So a lot of my sort of early role was sort of setting up a database and making sure that all of the financial data from all these different vendors um, was clean. And, and by clean, I mean was free of sort of uh, what they would call spikes. So this would be, you know, the price suddenly becoming 10 times the amount just because of a typo. Um, and then reverting right back to the normal level again, or um, um, just making sure that corporate actions such as dividends 
stock splits um, were all accounted for. You know, obviously, if you look at a, a raw price feed and it drops by 50%, you might think the world is coming to an end. But in actual fact, it's just done a, a you know, it's sort of stock split. Um, and we had to make sure that all these were married up because these signals were going straight into um, a live, continuous algorithmic system. And so in order, we didn't want any sort of bad data going in that would obviously trigger a trade that was really um, nonsensical. So a lot of work goes into this data cleansing. In fact, there's a sort of small anecdote. Um, the quant trader that I worked with that is former role, he told me that they had about four to five PhDs. Their entire day job was just obtaining data and cleaning it for the rest of the team in a larger fund. So there's a lot of investment going into data cleansing. It's not really something that's very often discussed in the kind of quant blogosphere, if you like, because it's not really a sexy topic. <laughs> Nobody really wants to talk about, you know, running through reams of terabytes of data to clean it. But it's it's one of those things that's absolutely necessary in a kind of institutional setting. So that was sort of the, the first part, really, the data cleansing. And then the rest of it really involved sort of being very careful and testing each of these um, components or modules that did uh, a particular task. So the risk management module, um, the the sort of portfolio and order management module, um, the execution module. So all of these um, were sort of isolated components that talked to each other and they all needed to be tested. And a lot of that testing involved um, trying to throw bad data at them in order to get them to break in ways that you don't expect. So a lot of it is really just you know, coming up with these sort of quirky ways that these systems might fail in the real setting and then just absolutely making sure as much as you can that they are going to be as robust as possible. Because once you've deployed it live, you know, if bad data gets in there, it can, it can cause all sorts of havoc, as you can imagine. You know, um, there's plenty of stories around um, of, of things that have gone wrong <laughs> in algorithmic trading. So that's roughly what I was doing, just making sure these systems were... Um, were sort of uh, impervious to harm, if you like. Okay, very good. That's that's really interesting. I want to ask you a little bit more about data um, a little bit later too. So um, I've made a note of that. Were you ever sort of hands-on, did you have any input on how the actual strategies traded? Were you involved in that aspect of the fund? Well, we had, we had quite an... Um uh, an alternative means of actually obtaining strategies. So we, um, what we did is we we were sort of scouring the internet for lots of alternative data sources. Um, not your tradi- we, we did use traditional pricing data, um, but we also used a lot of um, documentation and, and uh, sort of uh, text data, you know, um, natural language data, and used that essentially to augment our signals. So. Um, we would take uh, a lot of blogs, a lot of more structured kind of data, and then try and um, uh, sort of mix it all into a big pot, if you like, that um, would produce us lots of consistent and agreeing signals, at which point we would we would trade based on that, rather than relying too much on any one sort of indicator or any one um, you know, particular uh, mechanism. So we, we, we tried to have you know, all the stars in alignment, if you like, before we, we, um, we took some trades. But I, I was, so the way the actual um, sort of trading mechanism worked is we, we would have um, sort of weekly meetings where the quant trader would present um, new strategies that he had determined and come across. And then we would try and break them down 
into their sort of constituent components and then try and fit them into our um, system. So I didn't, I didn't have any direct um, input into the sort of development of the, the trading strategies themselves, but I was pretty intimately involved in their implementation, if, that, if you like. So um, the quant trader, the quant researcher's goal was really to find new ways of, um, I guess you'd call it generating alpha, if you like, finding signal. And uh, my goal was to try and slot that mechanism into the system that we already had in such a way that it was risk managed and the position sizing would um, would not be too would not sort of go outside our risk bounds. And what markets? I'm just curious. What markets were you mostly trading there at the fund? So initially, um, probably like everyone else, we were trading um, uh, very liquid kind of large cap U.S. equities. Um, the brokerage that we were using was uh, was very cheap to trade those. And I think um, later on, we actually also expanded into what I guess would be a sort of fund of fund mentality, which is where we found other funds and we, we allocated a, um, a certain amount of our portfolio to these other funds, which were doing, which, um, so, so a lot of them were what would be called CTAs, commodity trading advisors. So uh, kind of quant trend following funds. And so we had our own internal strategies, but we also had um, part of our portfolio allocated to external managers. And so um, that made for quite an interesting um, portfolio construction and risk management approach. So um, probably quite different from a lot of quant funds, which completely internalize everything. But we, we were trying to go for a sort of diversified approach, not you know our own strategies as well as others. Okay, cool, cool. So, why did you why did you leave the fund? I think you mentioned you were there for around about two years. What was what led to the decision to go out and trade independently? Um, so, a couple of things. Um, I think we we had um, some difficulty trying to secure the next institutional um, round of funding. So, we had what I guess would be called a, a sort of friends and family round right at the start, which, you know, by, by technology startup standards was quite high, but for quant hedge fund startups was, was, uh, was, you know, pretty good. It was average. Um, but we needed to sort of go to the next level and really attract institutional investment. And, um, you know, it was, we, it was, it was tricky. It was a tricky environment to raise money in at the time. And, um, uh, ultimately, um, we didn't manage to do so. So we, we, um, we sort of disbanded. Um, and then I continued doing uh, a lot of software development um, at the time, which is what I was really, you know, I was really a, a programmer, if you like, quant programmer. And so I ended up doing um, a lot of consulting in um, machine learning and data science, which was, again, at the time, only just really becoming a thing, if you like. Um, and then um, all, all, all the while, I was sort of building Quantstart. Um, and eventually got to the point where um, Quantstart was was becoming a, a good fraction of my sort of um, income, um, and now I sort of only uh, periodically do consulting for um, sort of smaller funds um, in the kind of machine learning and, uh, and and software development quant infrastructure. So so I'd sort of do a mix now. So that's that's how I ended up where I am. No, that's that's really cool. And are they um, are they funds that are local to you there in London, or are they international? Like, who? who yeah. Are they? So I'm, 
I, I've um, mainly been helping uh, a, a company that's based out in in, um, in Zurich, but they have a, a UK office. Um, but I've also been helping a local UK fund periodically um, on a sort of advice basis to help them um, get their infrastructure up and running. Because a lot, you'll, you'll find that a lot of um, sort of early stage quant funds are run by ex portfolio managers. Now they they're used to having a lot of um, uh, you know IT infrastructure behind them. You know they can pick up the phone and just ring ring the IT department or the quant dev department when when something goes wrong. But once they branch out onto their own, they usually you know they're very very good on the on the strategy development, very very good on the statistics and and portfolio management. But they they lack um, uh, kind of infrastructure deployment skills if you like so this is how to take their strategy and put it into the cloud or, or, or you know put it against a brokerage and that's where there's a lot of um scope for for bringing a, a kind of quant developer to um help them get off to the to the right start rather than building a kind of a house of cards of software that you know doesn't really um, isn't robust enough i mean obviously you know while this may not be a problem in retail uh, trading it is a big problem in institutional that they need to be very compliant you know there's a huge amount of compliance and regulation that needs to be followed and it's it's um one of one of the big headaches of the industry is, is the amount of sort of time that's spent just taking care of compliance and this is something that you you don't really have to worry about too much in in, in sort of normal retail trading settings because you know you're trading on your own account but when you're trading others money it, it's it's a very different story so a lot of um you know, building these systems is about making sure they're compliant and that the regulators and the, you know, the compliance is, is all happy. Let's talk a little more about how you're actually trading today. Like, can you share some insight to the types of strategies that you yourself are developing and trading to this day? Okay, so I my sort of focus with trading tends to be, um, probably I'll, I'll sort of say that I tend to think much more on the portfolio level about trading rather than the individual strategy level. So I will, um, the sort of main goal, if you like, in quant trading is, is well, in fact, trading in general probably is, is um, you know, you're, ma- you're trying to maximize your um, your expected returns, if you like, your expected uh, value, but you're also trying to minimize your, your risk, your sort of long-term risk. So with those two constraints, I tend to, to see that at the portfolio level. And so what I would tend to do is, is um, put in um, strategies into a kind of already existing portfolio if I believe they will either reduce the risk of the portfolio going forward or increase its um, uh, expected returns without bringing in too much new risk. Okay? And that is generally how institutions think, in, you know, um, you're basically always worried about these two factors. It's not, uh, you know, it, it, when it's your own, you know, personal account, it's not so much of a problem, risk management, because you, if you've got the stomach for it and you understand that, you know, the strategies you're trading are going to have chunky drawdowns at some point, you just have to sit through them when you, you come to see them in live trading. So risk management is is different for retail, but in, in institutional settings, it's... Um, it's, uh, it's, it's much more stringent. You know, there's, there's a lot of things you can't do and you've got to be conscious of the fact that you're managing others' money. So um, a lot of the consulting I do is, is really of the latter type. So the, the sort of trading I'm involved with at the moment is mainly um, making sure that a lot of the stuff is risk minimized. 
um, which is which maybe it might sound a bit counterintuitive. You know that a lot of people concentrate on the strategy and what what strategies are you running and what you know, how's your alpha generated. But I would say a big piece, a vastly sort of ignored piece in the kind of uh, retail sort of quant sphere is um, is risk management because it, it's it's one of the ways that you can actually make more money, in my opinion. To have a very good solid risk management system will actually make you more money over the long run because you're not losing as much money. I think people forget that it's not just about making money, it's about preserving the money you already have. Um, so a lot of what I do is I spend time looking at risk management. Um, I, my personal view on kind of the, the strategies, as you say, is that they're, they're, very, they're quite easy to find. Trading strategies are really abundant in, in the literature. They're all over the internet. There's, there's plenty of blogs and forums, um, you know, podcasts, obviously. Um, there's there's also, you know, hundreds of research papers that get published on, you know, every day on, on new trading strategies. Um, so I don't I don't think that it's difficult if there's such to find them. I think it's, it's very hard to test them and make sure that they um, are doing what they say on the tin. But um Finding them is not really is not really difficult. Um, so I tend to stick really with with some pretty simple stuff. I, th I tend to stick with the sort of trend following, and 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 sort of mean reversion type strategies. But but bear in mind that I I tend to think on a much more of a sort of portfolio level. So I I I'll have a f you know a few strategies running at once rather than concentrating on the sort of world's greatest trend following strategy or the world's greatest mean reversion, if you like. So really diversification across lots of different strategies. That's that's my approach. Okay. So when you've you've you highlighted risk management there as being, you know, one of the most important factors in, in your eyes, are you looking at risk management from a portfolio level or on an individual sort of strategy level? Generally on the portfolio level. So um, obviously, you know, two strategies can produce opposing trades. Um, and if they're in your portfolio, at the same time, you have to decide what you do. You know, do you do you not trade? You know, if somebody wants to go long an instrument, another one wants to go short an instrument by different fractions. You have to net that out somehow. Um, so I, I tend to think of this not on the strategy level, but on the on the portfolio level. So I I mean the you know, the obvious tools are you know things like the Sharpe ratio and your maximum drawdown. Um, they're the sort of you know bread and butter of portfolio management. Um, but um, the other sort of risk management techniques I tend to think about, you know, will include, um, at least at the institutional level in consulting, I'll be thinking a lot about, um, you know, average daily volume limits. So are we, if we're trading on, you know, more niche markets, are we likely to be hitting anywhere near a good fraction of, you know, the, the day's average volume? Because if you are, then you're having a substantial impact on the market itself, at which point all of your prior Sort of analysis, your back testing, if you like, um, is essentially rendered useless because you're you're interacting with your own market at that stage, you know, in, in a way that's heavily modifying it. So um, things like you know making sure we're not too uh, sector dependent, um, and that you know the risks that we don't want to take, for instance, uh, are hedged out. You know, if if we're running a strategy that's supposed to be neutral, we don't really want to be exposed, say, for instance, to U.S. equity market broadly so you you'll hedge that out um and you know therefore you're you're only as much as you can you're trying to concentrate on the risks of your actual 
you know, portfolio, not of the wider risks to the rest of the world, if you like. You don't want to be uh, subject to sort of huge market fluctuations if that's not what you're trying to trade. Okay. And are all these considerations built into your risk management module or are these things that you're, you know, monitoring with some discretion? Um, so I, I tend to automate everything as much as I can. And the reason for that is because I think it's very easy psychologically. I think they, they, they call this recency bias, which is very easy to sort of look at, you know, the last week or, or today's, you know, um, uh, activity as something that is um, very, you know, new. Oh, we've never seen this before. It's never happened before. But in actual fact, if you step back through time, um, there are plenty of cases where sort of, uh, you know, terrible things have happened in the markets. It's just that people forget. And so as a quant, you're, you're constantly trying to eliminate all of these sort of psychological biases. And that's kind of baked in to your risk management. And, and you, you have to have a, a quite a, a strong element of trust that, you know, what, what's happened in the past will probably happen again in the future in terms of bad things happening. Um, and that it's not just different today. Um, so uh, it means it's the, the main reason for this is it's measurable and it's objective. You know, you're not you're not going on hunches. You're not going on gut feels. You're, you're sort of eliminating all of your own biases as much as possible. And then it's only down to the raw maths and statistics of it, if you like. Mm. If that makes sense, absolutely. No, hundred percent makes sense. I mean, that's one of the that's one of the things that attracts me, you know, on a personal level to quantitative trading as well. Well, I would say as a flip side that people do have a tendency to get very myopic as well about, um, you know, blindly following the numbers just because the numbers say things. I mean, statistics is not perfect art by any means. It's um, it's a tool to help you make decisions fundamentally. And sometimes, you know, if you've got incomplete data or, you know, you've, you, you're not, you don't have the entire picture, then statistics won't, won't magically tell you that things are, you know, the right way to do it. It's, so... I think there is a there is a sort of discretion that does come into it, but the discretion happens at the research phase before you implement the trading strategy, I think, if you like. So that's where the discretion comes in. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You described a lot of the strategies that make up your portfolio 
as trend following or, or mean reversion, but just the, the trend following, I mean, often when we hear the term trend following, we sort of think long-term trades that could go for three to 12 months maybe, or sometimes longer. Are these the types of strategies you're talking about or are you talking about sort of intraday trends that you're following? So I tend to trade on a sort of more shorter time scale generally. And the, the consulting I do tends to be with funds that are also um, thinking on a more shorter time scale. Now, the reason for that is because um, when you're trading over longer time scales, while you do have, um, while there is probably um, more, uh, I guess, signal per trade, if you like, you know, that, that it's it's harder to predict the future much further out. So if you if you are taking like a big global macro sort of bet, um, then you know it, it's likely it can pay off. But um, the problem is is that it's very difficult to to draw any conclusions from one or two or three or four um, long term trades in a, in a statistical sense. You can't use um, traditional statistical theory to say easily whether those trades happened by chance or whether they were, you know, part of your, your, um, you know, your, your skills, if you like. So traders, the quant traders like shorter term trading principally because it gives them more trades to analyze. Now it is probably harder per trade to, to sort of get some signal out of there because there's a lot of, um, sort of short term fluctuation that really is not, um, I don't know. So it's not really underlying signal. Like it's just literally, short-term um, wiggles. Um, but the thing is you have access to a lot more trades and therefore you can start applying statistical tools that will say, did these series of trades that I placed that were profitable come about simply because I flipped a coin the right way? Or is it because there is some underlying profitability there that I've, that I've captured? So I tend to prefer working on the shorter timescale for that reason. Um, now the the other problem with working at the shorter timescales is that you're competing with um, a lot of firms funds that uh, that have a lot a huge technology budget to play with and and you know vast teams of quants that can go ahead. So you have to really look for sort of more specific areas that are just unattractive for these these funds to play in because um, otherwise you, you're not likely to have a strong edge against them. Because if you think about it, they 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 they're doing this all day every day, with with tens or hundreds of people. Um, so they they will likely know a lot of the edge. So I tend to think of look for things where you, there's a lot of um, capacity constraints. You know that if they've got huge amounts of money to deploy a large um, assets under management AUM, then they're not going to be interested too much in low um, capacity strategies because it's not worth their time. To uh, in, you know, to put small amounts of money against these these sort of uh, these smaller niche markets because they need they need to deploy a lot of capital and therefore they need more liquid markets if you like if that makes sense. Absolutely, Nia. That was a that was a brilliant answer, Mike. Um, so so generally speaking, what's the logic of your strategies for for buying and selling? Like, are they based upon you know traditional technical analysis? Are they based upon order flow? e-trading pairs or, or what are some of the factors that, um, you know, tell you or tell your strategies when to buy and sell? Okay. So, um, so for mean reversion, I guess we can have a look at that. Um, I tend to use uh, a lot of um, time series analysis 
so there's a there's a huge wealth of um of uh, statistical tools that you can bring to bear from from uh, kind of econometrics time series analysis such as um uh, uh co-integration and um which is you know it's quite a quite a well-known uh, mechanism so that essentially uh states that there are uh, that there is a sort of fundamental I guess what you'd call physical relationship between um, two assets or two or more assets, and, and just by virtue of them, uh, uh, of how they're structured. So the, the sort of canonical, perhaps sort of slightly silly example is is when you have two share classes on the same asset. Okay, they they are both going to be tracking, um, you know, the underlying movement. So I think I wrote recently about Royal Dutch Shell, you know, the big oil major. There's two share classes there, and they will trade slightly differently themselves, but they, they, there's no sort of getting around the fact that they both have to track the underlying performance of the company in the long term. So they, they share a structural relationship. Um, now, it's, it's quite hard to trade something like that because the structural relationship is very tight. But, you know, in, in other situations, um, and a sort of good um, sort of fertile field for these sort of things is, is, is to be found when looking at um, – uh, things where you have like physical commodities as well. So um, I think so. A lot of uh, assets that track these physical commodities will have structural dependence, which can be detected, if you like, via these these kind of co-integration stationarity techniques. And once you've detected this over a lot of um, over a lot of assets, which gives you the ability to diversify, you can then use pretty straightforward actual trading signals you know they're, they're really um not really much more complicated than you know if, if the signals diverge dramatically you know in, in a traditional pair sense then then you um then you know buy in and if they converge you, you sell out again so um the, the the sort of secret source if you like to this is in optimizing the parameters as to when you go when you buy and when you sell as you know as as, as everyone's well aware you know the the devil's in the details and and so i would spend a lot of time perhaps using simple trading strategies but but spend a lot of time actually optimizing the parameters of those strategies in order to um not only sort of maximize the returns but also minimize the risk i mean there's a lot of risk in doing mean reversion it's uh you know, if you get it wrong, you can get it very wrong. So um, you have to be very careful and, very, and quite sure when you're placing a trade. Um, so that's roughly the process I do. So I wouldn't say there's any major, I don't use any really um, incredibly special sort of uh, mean reversion techniques. I just tend to be very cautious about my parameter optimization, making sure that what I do have is very, um, uh, is, is pretty robust, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so just a couple things based on what you said there. Um, time series analysis, what's that actually referring to? Could you just um, maybe explain that? Give us a brief overview of, of what exactly is time series analysis. Yeah, so the, the basic idea is that um, you've got a set of points of data, each of which has a sort of day or, or time point associated with it. And usually the, the sort of obvious example is pricing data. So what you might want to look at with one of these time series is you might take Google or Apple stock price and you'll say, is this time series actually increasing? So is, is there actually an underlying trend there? Or is it just a series of random steps up or down? Okay, because if it's the latter, 
then it has no predictive power whatsoever. They call it a random walk. So even though um, something may look like it's gone up over time, there's there's actually no you know, uh, ability, if you like, to, to trade it. There's no predictive power in its past data to give you new data. So what what time series analysis is really all about is taking a kind of historical series and saying, does the does do the previous days or previous weeks of data, do they tell me anything about what the likelihood of, of the next day or the next week's data are going to be? Because if 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 they don't, then there's absolutely no point in in using it. But generally you find that there is a little bit of predictive capability. It's not much, but generally in because you know markets are very efficient, but um, certainly, once you start looking at um, more structured niche markets, you will you will certainly see that. Um, uh, well, the, the technical term for this is autocorrelation. It basically means that um, you can predict partially tomorrow's price based on previous day's prices. And if you have what they would call a sort of positive autocorrelation, then you can then you will hope that you could use that to um, to exploit what is essentially an inefficiency and um, and then make a trade based on it. So time series analysis is all about um, understanding the, the kind of autocorrelation structure of past data so that you can use it to um, predict the future structure, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and I know you've written about this extensively on uh, Quantstart. So what we might do is dig up a couple articles and we'll link to those in the show notes. How does that sound? Yeah, it sounds great. So, I mean, there's there's obviously, you know, the way to think of this really is that it's all about modeling. So you have to you you are you're coming up with a with a model which is essentially an idealization of reality that um, has you know is either can be quite simplistic or it can be very complicated. And you know, the the simpler it is, the more easy it is to interpret and understand, but the less it will match the real world. Whereas the more complicated it is. It's much harder to understand and much harder to interpret, but you would hope that given enough data, it will it will match the real world um, a lot better. So a lot of uh, time series analysis is really about um, understanding these different models and um, accounting for different um, events that happen in financial markets. So shocks to the system, like Brexit, I guess, could be considered a bit of a shock. You know, the market was fully expecting uh, a Remain vote. In fact. You know, it was almost it was pretty much dead certainty, I think, before uh, the results came in. And so this would be considered like a structural shock to the market. And so time series analysis has to take in not only, you know, the kind of day to day fluctuations, but also account for these sort of um, left field structural shocks if they're to be useful. Because otherwise, if they don't take them into account and they are happening in real life, then your model is not really re- uh, matching reality in any in any real sense. So won't be profitable to trade it. That was a really good answer. The, the second thing I wanted to ask you about, um, based off what you said just just before, was uh, optimizing parameters. Like, how do you approach this? What's your what's your approach to optimizing parameters? Okay, well, I I'll firstly say that it is probably one of the hardest aspects of quant finance or quant trading in general is is uh, parameter optimization. I mean, it's not only um, difficult in a in a theoretical sense um, but it's also very practically difficult i mean it's 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 quite easy to convince oneself in in back testing that 
you found the world's greatest strategy um, simply by varying, um, you know, your parameters. So the classic example is the, is the you know, the, the, like the moving average cross strategy. You know, you might you might adjust the two, um, um, you know, moving average look back windows, um, and then you might find that some particular obscure combination, you know, gives you a great result on that particular data set you've looked at. But as soon as you put it into practice. Um, it fails completely. So that is the that's what's classically known as overfitting, um, which is where you've um, constructed your model so closely to the to the historical data that it doesn't account for um, ch future changes, if you like, very easily, and so it falls apart. And this is really common. It's probably one of the biggest pitfalls in in, in sort of quant trading when people get started. So so there's a, there's a couple of ways of of um, dealing with it i guess it, there's no sort of way of completely eliminating it but there are ways of, of uh, reducing its impact if you like so the the classic um statistical mechanism is known as is known as cross-validation so the, the basic idea with cross-validation is that um you uh, can sort of randomly partition your historical data or your previous data into batches and then you try um, you know, using your model, if you like, on all of these different batches. And then you take a kind of average of, of what they produce. So that it's almost like you're giving it 10 separate or 10 separate universes to have a go at, um, rather than one big universe, if you like. And that, that um, statistically is a lot more valid and it makes it more likely that it will, will perform better as it goes forward. So that, that that's, that's the key sort of technique in statistics and machine learning to deal with this. There's a few different variants of it, um, but it's all related um, to this rather sort of esoteric statistical concept known as the bias variance trade-off. Um, and in trading, um, probably the best way to deal with parameter fitting, overfitting is, is with this cross-validation mechanism. So um, thankfully, these days, it's, it's quite easy to do. A lot of the... Um, quant tools especially in programming tools that i use they they have kind of built-in systems for just performing um cross-validation or cv as a lot of people call it so it's it's much easier nowadays to um to actually come out with a much more robust backtest than it was say even 10 years ago when you had to program all the stuff yourself over and over again so that that's the that's the key way i deal with parameter fitting but i also you know, you also have to actually step back and look at what you're actually doing. I mean, you know, when you when you're if you look at a sort of moving average cross, for instance, and you're just randomly adjusting the look back windows until you get, you know, a nice result. You've really got to say to yourself, why is a sort of 50 period or two, you know, 206 period or 138 period moving average good? What's what's special about 138 compared to 139 or 150 or 160? So. You, you also have to have a kind of physical intuition and say, does this really make sense? Is there really something that is uh, is, is happening on a 138-day scale that is not happening at 136 or 135? So, well, you know, a lot of it has it does come down to common sense as well, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. So you, you, you dropped the word machine learning there. I'd love to ask you a bit more about that. Okay. You know, that, that cross-validation, is that a machine learning... Uh, what's the right word? Tactic. I mean, is that? Yeah, it's, that, it's a method that is sort of comes over from a, a field known as statistical learning. So, I mean, in in um, 
quant finance, you have or or, or sort of theoretical um, statistics, if you like. You have two camps. You've really got the sort of uh, traditional statisticians, and then you have the kind of computer scientists. And 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 machine learning is like a marriage of these kind of two worlds. You know, one of them is very very good at data analysis and interpreting data, and you know, it's used extensively in things like clinical trials, um, you know, all the kind of bread and butter statistics stuff you read about in the newspaper. Um, and then the other is is all about, you know, the computer science is all about taking huge amounts of data and sort of trying to find patterns within it, you know, in, in a very different way. And so statistical machine learning, if you like, is kind of a marriage of those two worlds. And cross-validation is a sort of technique that was born out of that marriage, I think. Um, so it, it's it, it's a nice kind of a, a sort of heuristic process for um, you know doing parameter optimization that is pretty objective. You know you can see the results of it. It's it's not um, hand wavy. You know you're not just saying oh this looks good. It is a very kind of objective approach. Sure. And do you use machine learning in any other aspects of your trading? So there we kind of talked about know, uh, optimizing parameters and, and, you know, the backtesting process. Do you use it in any other areas of your trading as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, um, it is, it's very widely used. I think, I think the canonical example that people have of machine learning is, you know, what is tomorrow's price based on some model of all the past prices? Okay. A bit similar to time series analysis, but with different models. So that, that does occur, certainly. And um, I've talked about it a lot on the site. But the, uh, in, in institutional settings, machine learning is generally used for um, things which you might not expect. So, um, you know, you might be looking for, so let's, let's take, for example, um, uh, people who run ETFs that track stock indices. So something like um, the Spider ETF that, that tracks the US uh, S&P 500. So they have a kind of physical mandate to buy and sell shares in the, S- in, in the S&P constituents as and when they get knocked out. Okay, so that is a sort of structural thing that's happening in the market. And they will obviously do their best to try and minimize the impact of this, this, this sort of necessary trading that they have to do in, in large block sizes. You can imagine some of the big big funds that have to have to do this and, and sell in and out. So they try their best to kind of mask these these big orders so that they the hedge funds don't sort of look at them and go, aha, you know, we can we know what you're doing there. We can we can sort of um, trade based on the fact we know that you're going to be dumping a large block of shares in the market. So um, machine learning is a good way of finding these patterns of how the I guess there's essentially execution patterns of how these big funds are um, dumping or buying these shares on the market. So what might not be structurally evident to the sort of naked eye um, will over a long time period be very structurally evident to a kind of machine learning tool because they can learn from these sort of huge amounts of data that, you know, the S&P relies on. So, um, you know, you might also find it used in situations where you're trying to predict spreads of a particular um or stock or, or trading asset that you're interested in. Because if you can, you know, while you may not want to, while you may obviously want to try and predict direction, it's also very useful to be able to predict spreads. Because if you if you know in the next time period or the next month or whatever that spreads are going to be slightly higher, you may want to down vote or down weigh the possibility of making a trade in that period because it will be more expensive. And again, you know, this, this is a kind of 
um, rather than increasing returns. This is this is sort of decreasing costs, if you like. Um, so that's another area where it's used. So it's used a lot in these kind of um, non-traditional ways. And by non-traditional, I mean predicting tomorrow's price from kind of uh, historical prices. But the probably the final or an additional use for it is in is in uh, much more non-traditional data sources. So, you know, there's a huge amount of, of social data, uh, videos, images, tweets, um, you know, satellite data, lots of what, what would typically be called non-numeric data, you know, non-pricing data. And machine learning techniques, they absolutely excel at kind of finding patterns within these. So uh, you can think of a simple example where you might be, you might have a you know a hedge fund that's paid for a lot of real-time satellite data over crop fields in certain parts of the world, and by you know aggregating all of these sort of um, uh, crop images, they can ascertain whether um, there's going to be a good crop yield or bad yield in in the future, and so that is a sort of perfect example of where machine learning techniques absolutely excel because they'll be using that to sort of say, you know, this field is, is not as healthy as we thought. This field is a bit more healthier than we thought. Um, and, and so it's very non-traditional. You're not using pricing data at all. You're really just using, um, you know, physical image data. And that's where machine learning can really excel, I'd say. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I saw you'd written about it on Quantstart and it, and it blew my mind. Like I had no idea this sort of thing went on that oh, yes. there was uh, yeah. satellite <laughs> imagery like who would have thought that that could have been used to generate trading ideas like that's that's so wild <laughs> it, it is wild i mean i get the thing is you know it, hedge funds are so competitive nowadays there's so many of them and it's a lot easier to start one a quant hedge fund than it was um, still very expensive and tricky but it's it's less tricky um, and as such you know you've really if you're pitching to an investor You've really got to sort of say, you know, what is what is my secret source? What am I? What are you doing differently from all the other trend following or mean reverting funds out there? You know, and so in this sort of uh, you know desperate quest for for, for alpha, um, a lot of these funds are turning to these these kinds of sources of data. So you might, I think I mentioned probably the post you're referring to is, um, you know, looking at looking at some of the car parks of some of the big retailers you know, via satellite imagery and, and seeing how many cars are parked there, because that will give you an indication as to, you know, what their earnings are going to be like in the next quarter, which, you know, again, it, is, it does blow your mind a bit to think that people are doing this. But it happens in all sorts of different ways. You know, there's, there's a lot of websites that will track, um, you know, aircraft and, and ships around the world. And so a lot of hedge funds will use this kind of maritime traffic data to see, you know, whether oil's being stored or, you know, and, and therefore what the kind of supply demand imbalance is. Um, obviously, these are all models. You know, they're not, there's only so much you can do. You're, you're always seeing a piece of the puzzle. But even that is sufficient, if you like, to um, have have an edge, a very direct kind of clear physical edge um, over the rest of the market. So that's what a lot of these hedge funds tend to specialize in. And so you can imagine then the importance of obtaining, cleaning and, um, you know, sort of analyzing this data becomes a sort of first class citizen, if you like. Yeah, no, that's that's really incredible. So just leading on from machine learning a little bit uh, to artificial intelligence. I mean, do you think uh, artificial intelligence has a place in the future of trading? I mean, firstly, AI is quite a broad term, but I think probably what what we're what we're talking about here is something called um, well, at least, at least there's one specific area of AI which is probably reinforcement learning. 
um, which has become very famous recently because of um, a firm called DeepMind, which is actually based here in London. Um, they they built some AI tools to um, to sort of defeat that sort of ancient game of Go, which is a very complex strategy game. Um, I know they are doing a lot of work about trying to um, apply that to any uh, sort of uh, national health service data here in the UK. So, um, you know, all of our hospital records, anonymized hospital records. Um, so in terms of trading, they, they use a, a process known as reinforcement learning um, for this sort of stuff. And what it, the basic idea with reinforcement learning is that it's, it's, it's the sort of third pillar of machine learning. And, and the idea is that you, you have what they would call an agent who is essentially pretty dumb and sort of wanders around in whatever kind of uh, space they have um, and then if, and tries to do stuff and they get rewarded or punished depending on what actually occurs. So, um, you know, in trading, that this would obviously be, you know, you'd have a, a sort of stupid trading bot that would um, periodically buy and sell randomly and then it would be rewarded, if you like, by making money and penalized by losing money. So, by doing that over and over and over again in a, in a kind of simulated way, the, the, the sort of reinforcement learner would, would eventually and hopefully learn um, through kind of structure of what, what's going on in the, in the, in the trading data um, how to get better. So I th I'm, I'm pretty confident, although I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty confident that there must be um, a lot of secretive work going into this area. In, in some of the big quant funds. Um, you can sort of see because one, one of the great ways to tell what quant funds are really up to is to look at who they're hiring and what type of people they're hiring. Um, so there's a, there's a few sort of quant job sites around and if you see what, what sort of skills they're currently looking for, it does give you a bit of an indication as to what kind of research areas they are, they're thinking of um, looking at. So I, I've seen a few, uh, you know, reinforcement learning um, demands so i'm assuming it is going on but as you know it's a very secretive world and uh, people aren't generally willing to share too much <laughs> so. yeah yeah very interesting very interesting indeed um one more subject i'd like to dive into with you is just programming in general so you know a question uh, you probably get it all the time it's it's a very common question is what language should someone use for algorithmic trading? Like, how do you address this? Because I know there's not like one single, one size fits all answer. So, I mean, what would you suggest? Okay, so there's kind of two answers. There's the short one and the long one, and I'll give both. So the, the short one is that I tend to use Python, which is becoming really popular these days, um, in, even in institutional settings, um, principally because it's, it's really easy to learn, even for complete beginners who've never done any programming. Um, and it's it's kind of fast enough for, for doing things. And it, but the, the main reason is that it has a lot of um, what they would call libraries. Okay, so these are sort of modules that other people have written um, to do lots of different things. So there's there's, a, there's hardly any need usually to implement lots of um, sort of simpler stuff yourself. You can just find somebody else who's already done it, and, and usually they've given it away for free. Then you can just sort of import it into your your um, your projects. So that's that's the short the short answer is I would go with Python for those reasons. Um, the longer answer is really, I mean, it's, it's sort of like asking what's what's the best way to you know drive from the the south of Australia to the north of Australia. I mean, that would depend whether you're wanting to get there really fast, in which case you take a Ferrari, or whether you want to carry you know 
10 tons of, of uh, you know, food with you, then you take a big HDV truck. So it, it, the, the question really needs to be framed in, in, in sort of what do you want from your algo trading? I mean, if you're doing high frequency trading, you know, sub, sub second trading where you need really, really uh, rapid execution speed, then you would use something like um, C or C++ or even, um, you know, some of the, the high frequency trading firms, they, they write their own custom chips, you know, they make their own circuit boards a lot of the time. So, they're really, you know, they really optimize to the nth degree for speed. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're doing longer term trading, um, you know, Python is pretty sufficient. Um, I mean, it does, there are areas where it doesn't do so well. It's not so good at um, really deep statistical analysis. I mean, it's not designed for that. It is, you know, it's a general purpose programming language that, um, you know, a lot of websites are written in it, for instance, and, um, you know, scientific applications. It's not a, it's not a statistical tool like um, R, which is, you know, was designed from the ground up to be a kind of statistical environment. R is also very heavily used in, in hedge funds for research, but equally, R doesn't have Python's ability to um, sort of talk to everything very easily, and it's not very good for actual um, algorithmic trading uh, infrastructure. It's great for doing the research, but it's not so good for, for infrastructure. So, in some sense, you use the right tool for the for the job. I mean, Python is probably the the sort of jack of all trades, master of some. So, it is a kind of good sort of one size fits all language. Um, I might to be you know. Uh, I use it for all my own stuff. Um, I use C++ occasionally for things that I really need to be fast, but I, I almost always use Python, and I have done even in institutional settings. Um, a lot of my sort of colleagues, they also all use Python. Um, it's great for machine learning. Um, but, uh, yeah, it really comes down to what it is you're doing. So the, the, sort, the short answer is Python for pretty much everything except HFT, in which case you should use C or C++ really. Okay. So do you have any tips for how to actually learn how to program? Like for someone who's currently, you know, a non-programmer, what would be the most efficient way for them to learn a new language and make sure that they're really learning the right things about that language? Yeah, definitely. Um, so these days it's really easy, no matter what platform you're using, so Mac, Linux, Windows, whatever, to actually install Python. Um, on Linux it sort of comes with it anyway. But on Windows and Mac, you can download um, a free tool called um, Anaconda um, by a firm called Continuum Analytics. And it basically just gives you this sort of um, really easy um, kind of uh, interface to just get started with Python. So obviously, that's a bit of a blank canvas, but it does mean you don't have to worry about any of the complicated installation. So once you've downloaded that and installed it, um, there are quite a few resources um, to go and learn Python programming. So I think if you're a complete beginner and you've never done any programming before, the best resources are some of these online uh, MOOCs, you know, massively open online courses. So there's um, there's Coursera and Udacity. I think Udemy. I, I can't remember the. I think that's the name. And they all have a kind of introduction to Python uh, course. Now, what what that'll teach you is the sort of bare bones basics of, of how to actually program. So these would be things like um, uh, sort of looping, so how to sort of do a procedure over and over again, how to make decisions within programming languages, so what they would call branching or if-else. So um, these are sort of you know basic programming concepts. So you'll learn all this kind of uh, bread and butter programming skills, but also probably be building you know reasonably interesting 
um, projects. So I think once you've spent a few weeks, maybe a month or so, getting to grips with the basics, you'll be at a point where you can start experimenting with with algo trading libraries. Um, so now that some of them are very complicated, you know, obviously there's obviously a lot of complication in algo trading. So um, you could just get started by downloading some pricing data and then sort of trying to plot it and then running some very simple indicators over that. And I use a tool called um, uh, Pandas, which, which is the Python data analysis library. It's also free. So all of this stuff, just sorry, just to clarify, it's all free. Don't need to pay for any of it generally. It's all open source. Um, and then once once you've had a go with that, you'll get used to the interface, um, and you can you can start taking some of the ideas that you may have for algo trading and then applying them um, in Python. And thankfully, there's a there's a there's a good community of people who do this, and there's a great sort of quant blogosphere. I think if people should definitely check out a website called Quantocracy, which I'm sure you're pretty well aware of. It's um, it's a kind of uh, link aggregator, if you like, for, for quant finance websites. And loads of the bloggers on there um, put a lot of tutorials out on how to use R and Python for doing quant trading. And there's loads of um, what they call snippets, you know, little pieces of code that um, you can sort of just almost copy and paste, if you like, to, to, to have a go and then step through line by line to see what's actually being done. And that, that gives you a good start, I think, into, into algo trading. And then you can just build up from there. Um, it's, it's really a never-ending road. I mean, I, I tend to think of myself as, you know, still learning all the time. You're always a student, really, in quant finance. You're never a, a master, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now that's that's really good advice. And I liked your comment about just sort of going through line by line and trying to work out what's going on here. I mean, you know, I've been learning Python myself, you know, previously a non-programmer and I don't really quite feel comfortable calling myself a programmer yet. I don't really feel like I'm, I'm at that level, but um, definitely putting a lot of effort into learning Python. Um, that's one of the things I found really helpful was actually looking at, you know, some some reasonably basic algorithms that other people have written, uh, which I might've pulled off uh, Quantopian or something like that. Yep, yep. And just going through each line and just commenting, you know, using your um, hashtag at the start of the line. So it's a comment. Um, so that the, you know, the, that line is ignored, um, and just writing yep. what actually yeah. happens each on each every on each and every line, like what's actually going on there. I found that really helpful. So no, that was a really good point. Um, well, Python's very good for that. I mean, it, it, it's it's one of the most readable by design. Actually, it's one of the most readable programming languages. It's designed to sort of almost look, you know, like um, how you would describe a recipe to somebody. There's very little. Uh, sort of uh, hidden stuff going on a lot of the time, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, so here's a question. When you're coding a strategy or when you're coding, I guess, anything at all, where or who do you turn to if you get stuck? Right, okay. So um, uh, there's – so I, I tend to – so I um, – that's, that's a tricky question. <laughs> so where do you turn – so I tend to – have problems usually with sort of particular statistical algorithms, I guess. Are you talk, I presume you're talking about me or are you talking about in general? Well, people? yeah, I, I did say you, but I'm maybe yeah. thinking that was not the right term. I maybe think it would have been better if um, if someone else, like if, if someone learning oh, okay. to program, um, All right, let, let's take it that now. way. <laughs> All right, so yeah, if you buy you, you mean somebody who needs help. So um, 
There are, it depends generally on what sort of issue you're having. I mean, there are some great forums. So there's, um, there's obviously Reddit, which has a lot of subreddits for quant finance and Python programming. I mean, it's gen it was started by the sort of computer science-y kind of side of things. So there's loads of Python question and answer sort of sites. There's one of the best websites on the internet, actually, for any kind of programming or quant-related question is something called Stack Overflow or Stack Exchange. So it's... Um, it is it's absolutely fair. You can generally find any um, question imaginable. Somebody will have answered it. So um, usually what I tend to do, if I have an error or something's going wrong, I just copy and paste the error straight into Google. And um, uh, usually Stack Overflow will be the first link that comes up. You look at it and, and it'll be someone else who's had exactly the same error. And they'll say, what's going on here? And then there'll be a brilliant, usually a brilliant explanation beneath about what it is and how you can fix it. Um, and I know that may sound a bit, um, you know, unstructured if you like, but that I, I can t I can personally vouch for the fact that some of the top software developers use this method <laughs> all the time. You know, when they need help, they just Google the error message. Um, and, uh, and so that's one way of getting specific help for errors. But if you're having trouble coding a particular algorithm, um, some of the best places to ask, you, you can ask a question yourself at Stack Overflow, um, but more likely there's going to be somebody who will have done this. Um, so I tend, so let's say for instance, I, I want to do um, a mean reversion co-integration tool or whatever. I've got some statistical tests. I'll just type the name of the test into Google followed by Python. And usually in the first 10 links, there will be some project or code snippet that um, allows me to sort of go, oh yeah, okay, I see how it works now. I understand. Um, and, and so that is, you know, that's generally my mechanism. But the, I guess a lot of this sort of behavior or intuition comes from when you do, you know, a sort of research degree in general, you're, you're quite constantly doing this. So it becomes quite intuitive after um, a long time to kind of search for help in this manner when you're, when you're doing some kind of postgraduate course. So I think you'll, this is why a lot of quants tend to come from that kind of uh, academic background in general, because they're quite used to sort of going and seeking help and looking at papers and figuring out how to take those papers and put them into code. So... Um, it's a good skill that I think anyone should really try and learn, even if they're not interested in, in academic study. I mean, it's a very, very good skill set for sort of retail contractors is to take papers and, and code from elsewhere and try and figure out what it's doing, if you like. Absolutely. And I loved your suggestion of Stack Overflow too. I mean, I know that's got me out of trouble uh, quite a number of times. It's It's such an awesome resource. Okay, Mike. Well, let's start to to wind this down. And there was one thing I wanted to uh, just try to squeeze in. And you know, trading aside, I believe you're pretty big into space exploration. I mean, um, <laughs> I'm keen to hear a little bit about this. Is it something that you're pursuing? Are you pursuing yeah, anything yeah, in this arena, yeah. or is it more of just an interest? Um, no, it's it's. Uh, so when I said I did fluid dynamics at uni, it was um, actually in um, rocketry. So it's, it's an area known as computational fluid dynamics or CFD. And so you're, you're trying to simulate, um, uh, you know, I, I was essentially trying to simulate certain type of engine, like rocket, rocketry engines. And um, uh, I've actually recently been thinking about as a sort of secondary um, business to Quantstart is to sort of get back into um, kind of analysis again so uh, cfd analysis for for kind of different situations um so yeah i'm 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 mad keen 
on space exploration. I probably I probably didn't talk about it as much on Quadstart, if ever, but I, I do make a bit of a noise about it on Twitter, certainly. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, you know, I I I am actually possibly going to be working with a, a company that does um, uh, is is trying to do satellite design and launching um, in the UK. Uh, I, unfortunately, I'm not allowed to say too much more about it at the moment, but um, it, it's looking relatively hopeful. And so I think I'll be, I, I won't be directly involved on a day-to-day basis, um, but I will, I'll probably have a, a sort of advisory capacity because a lot of, uh, you know, like quantum finance, a lot of space exploration is really about testing, testing, testing. You know, it's, you're constantly trying to manage risk. You know, in, in, you know, in, in quant trading, if you, if you launch a strategy and you lose a bit of money, it's, it's painful and not, you know, it's never fun, but you can yank the strategy out and turn it off. Whereas with rockets, if you launch it, and something goes wrong, it blows up, you know, um, at best, nobody dies, you know, at worst, obviously, people can be killed. So you have to, you know, the, the level of risk and, and mission criticality like, is, is absolutely, it's very different from from uh, other industries. But I think, you know, quant finance could probably learn a lot from, from space and the way they deal with risk. You know, they, they, they won't launch anything until they're pretty much certain that it's not going to fail. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of traders you know, myself included, actually could probably do with using more of that um, sort of risk management mentality because I think it would it would reduce losses quite substantially. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's awesome. You'll have to keep us posted on the details when you're allowed to um, share a little more. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Anyway, Mike, do you want to share a little bit about Quantstart? Um, tell us, you know, what is Quantstart for no one who's ever checked out the site before um, and, and then we'll wind this down. Okay, so um, I tend to think of it as as an education portal, if you like, for quant finance in general. I mean, I, I have sort of gradually steered the ship over the last three years to talk a lot more about algo trading, um, but I still am very interested in talking about quant finance careers. So the site is, I would say, it's a mix of um, quant career advice and kind of quant trading advice, if you like, and, and tutorials. Now, my kind of my uh, my sort of key views, if you like, of a Quantstar is is one is that I, I like to talk about the details that most people will, will not discuss. Not because they're proprietary or secret, just because a lot of people think they're they're dull or boring. And I, I personally find that those aspects of quant finance are absolutely crucial for, for becoming profitable. You know, um, all the stuff we talked about today, data cleansing, um, you know, actually interacting with a broker via Python. How do you do it? How do you install these tools? You know, there's not much really discussed about that. There's always, always discussion about trading strategies and what's, you know, what's the next best strategy that's going to make you your millions. And I personally find that a lot of the, the difficult stuff is actually, you know, quite dull to talk about, but it's, it's necessary. And people have commented that they, they like that approach. So I, I'm, I sort of stick with it. Um, the other the other aspect of it is I tend to try and share as much code as possible um, so that people can just copy and paste it and use it themselves. Um, I don't really like people saying, oh, I've done this, I've done that, without providing an actual bit of code. Because, you know, I've been trained as a scientist to think of reproducibility. That's what we're trained to do in the sciences. You know, you want to, you want to share your work and you want to make sure other people can implement it as well. It also helps to find bugs. People can write in and say, look, sorry, this is buggy. You need to fix it. And that just makes it better for everyone. Um, so I think sharing code is a great idea. Um, also, the, the, probably the, the most important thing that I'm really keen on is to emphasize sort of continuous learning all the time. I mean, you know, once we leave school or leave uni, most people um, 
for, for whatever reason, just don't tend to want to continue learning as such. You know, they, they think they've done school, they've finished uni, they've got their grades, that's all good. But I think a quant's edge is really in their ability to continue reading all the time. I mean, I, if, if I had the ability, I would probably spend about 50 to 60% of my day just reading. And I know Warren Buffett is very famous for saying he spends 70-odd percent of his day just reading stuff. And I think um, that is probably the biggest source of edge in quant finance is just reading and reading and reading because you learn mistakes of other people, but you also learn about all these niche ideas that other people just aren't willing to to find out about and it gives you an edge naturally because people just aren't willing to, to go that far you know um there's there's so many resources out there not just the typical kind of flashy uh you know trading ideas but lots of white papers on hardware really obscure things that you think oh hang on a minute if i exploit this little trick here i'd be able to you know and um so there's the, i think reading is absolutely important and that and quantstart talks a lot about that so that's that's the basis of the site for sure. Well, I mean, anyone listening to this, I want you to check out quantstart.com if you have, you know, even just the slightest interest in quantitative or algorithmic trading, which I'm going to probably presume you do if, you, if you've stuck through right to the end of this. Um, so yeah, quantstart.com. And Mike, do you want to give out your Twitter handle as well? Yeah, so my um, my Twitter handle is mhallsmore, so M-H-A-L-L-S-M-O-O-R-E. Um, so I, do, I did have originally a quantstart Twitter, but I tend to out now do it all through my personal account now so that's my twitter handle good one good one okay all right michael well i've been looking forward to this interview for such a long time so i'm glad we could make <laughs> it happen you. um thanks so much for doing this man i, I really do appreciate it Yeah, well, thanks for having me on it's been absolutely brilliant thanks for uh thanks for taking the time to ring at eight in the morning <laughs> uk time <laughs> <laughs> no trouble thank you you've reached the end of this episode of chat with traders But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.